Adnan. Hey, Queen, how are you? I am well. How are you? I'm great. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Yeah, no, I actually want to get that. I found that very interesting when I was uh, when I had my team uh, do do the research with the team of me, myself, and I. <laughs> um, but I want to actually uh, ask you, and I, and I know you've uh, you've been public with some of your thoughts and stuff. You know, yesterday uh, there was a lot of changes at ESPN, um, and really, it's it's indicative of I feel of um, the media landscape in general uh, in North America. Um, uh, the uh, Americans would be familiar with uh, Fox Sports letting go of Gian Reid and, and Dan O'Toole, and a number right. of your colleagues at ESPN were, were let go earlier this week. Um, your thoughts on, you know, the changing landscape of media as we know it today, and and you know some of the people that you were working with. Yeah, I mean, it was awfully demoralizing for me just because, you know, any employee that you lose is going to be tough, but particularly these people. You know, it was primarily from the on-air ranks. And, you know, a lot of writers, insiders, analysts, and anchors who are superbly talented and will go on to bigger and better, I hope. But the, the unfortunate reality is, as you mentioned, the landscape has changed and the way that the sports media has changed. And, um, you know, we've seen this before with the auto industry, we've seen it with the newspaper industry, and now we're seeing it with sports television. And uh, the simple fact is that in the past, people would make the, the 11 p.m. Sports Center mandatory required viewing. Uh, to find out what happened with the day's highlights, or first thing in the morning, people getting up to watch highlights. And mm-hmm. now, everyone's on their phone. Like now, kids going to breakfast at seven thirty, they've already seen everything because they just you know turn on their phone and check Twitter and here's some highlights and here's some links and away you go. And um, you know that's not the same as monetizing Sports Center where you sell commercials and ad revenue and people actually sit down and and give it a go. So it's it's just been an evolution in terms of viewing habits, the way that people watch ESPN and consume sports highlights has, has radically shifted over the last little while. And I've been at ESPN for seven years, and I've actually seen the shift. And another issue has been cord cutting. You know, a lot of people are just looking to mm-hmm. cut cable and go through Netflix and live streaming. And uh, when I started in May of 2010, there was 100 million subscribers to ESPN, and now I think the number's 88 or 89 million. So if you lose 12 million subscribers in seven years, you know, that's significant. And um, I don't think it's that people are less inclined to love sports. I think people still love sports. There's still a ton of sports fans or avid fans. Um, but they're just looking to, to save money with regards to cable, and, and they're just looking to find different outlets. So, And also the other issue has been rights fees, that you know, mm. the cost for sports because of the you know, competition from Fox Sports and from NBC and CBS. So the NBA, I, I believe, I don't know the exact numbers, but I believe that ESPN was paying something like $400 million a year. And the deal came up, and... You know, to protect that property for ESPN, we end up having to pay over a billion dollars for it. So, wow. you know, you, when you take the combination of, you know, soaring rights fees, like that's a, that's a stratospheric hike, along with the decline of subscribers, you know, you're going to have to make some tough changes. So, you know, for me, it was a, it was a gut-wrenching day. You know, I still feel really demoralized, mm-hmm. losing so many friends. Danny Cannell is a good friend. I worked with him on college football coverage and on the radio. I was supposed to be working with Danny yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So I was wow. driving in, excited to see him. And then I got the call from our boss on college football that he was 
let go. So it was, you know, imagine filling in on a radio show and the guy you're supposed to be with isn't there because he got let go. I mean, it's just a, an awful predicament. Andy Katz, who's a wonderful friend, college basketball insider, been at ESPN 18 years. Well, the baseball guys I worked with, Dallas Braden, uh, Doug Glanville, Jim Bowden, Raul Abanez, and Jason Stark, who's been with ESPN for about 20 years. He's covered baseball for 40 years. And I read his book on my honeymoon, which he never uh, stopped enjoying when I would tell him that. Like, I never imagined I'd ever get to meet these people, much less call them friends. Wow. Um, and those those are a select few. I mean, there's there's a ton more that I, I've been able to try to reach out to. Jade McCarthy, Jake Crawford, you know, fellow anchors, Darren Haynes. A lot of people. Uh, that I've wanted to talk to. So there, there's, there's every single person. Uh, I feel like I've crossed paths at some point or another. So it's, it's really, really, really tough. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Now, you know, if you were to be able to wave a magic wand and, and you're, you're now in charge of ESPN Sports, you, how do you fix this? You know, because you're right, there's a lot of people that are cord cutting. Subscription is down. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Morgan Campbell of the Toronto Star, uh, but he was talking about, you know, sure, you let go of these people and, you, you know, you're saving some money, but, you know, long term, there's, there's still an issue here. Um, is is there a quick fix? Is is there a magic bullet? What are your thoughts? Um, you know, I don't I don't really know. I mean, trust us. If we knew, we would we'd be all in front of it. I think the big thing, like I said, is everyone's on their phone. So I think if you figured out a way to monetize hmm. that, you know, the ESPN app is on my phone. I don't think I pay for it. I don't know if you could somehow charge people for it or figure out a way that you charge them for highlights. But I don't I don't know how you do that. Like Twitter. Yeah. It's obviously a free app, and everything just goes on Twitter. So when you see a crazy dunk in a Raptors game for Norman Powell, it's already on Twitter. You can see the highlight. It's a, it's a gif. It's a meme and all that stuff. Like, it's all there for you. It's all free yeah. consumption. So I don't know how you charge people for that. Like, that's that's the problem to me. Everything's on the phone. Like, like yeah. everything. Like that's, the, that's the joke now. You go to, to have dinner with somebody, and you look around, and everyone's on their phone, and they're, either they're consuming the news or highlights or sports or so entertainment, true. whatever it is. So... I don't know how you fix sports center because I think those are just viewing habits that have evolved. Like if you if you now check on your phone, you just wouldn't go back to watching on TV. Although I'm still a guy who likes watching highlights. Like I don't, I adore movies, and I'm a guy who loves going to the movies. I know a lot of people now love Netflix and streaming, but that's that's not me. Like I've done it, but I don't. I would a thousand times more prefer going to the movies. I like the silver screen. Similarly with my sporting events, I don't like watching highlights on my phone. It's too small for me. I mean, I do it. I'm in a rush, whatever, I quickly do it. But I'd rather sit down and watch it on my nice TV and, and kind of indulge and appreciate it. So much like with live events, which is yes. really, I think, what ESPN, what they've done really smart. Like, you know, maybe to some it was an overpay for the NBA, but, you know, the feeling was you can't let any other property, you know, capitalize on this. It's a huge deal that, that the NBA finals are on ESPN and the playoffs and wall-to-wall coverage along with TNT. So maybe you pay a lot of money for it, but that's the one thing that is foolproof. You look at all the numbers. And the one thing that is DVR-proof is live sports. You know, live yes. television, that's different. People DVR, they'll watch broadcast television, you know, The Walking Dead, and they'll watch cable shows, Game of Thrones, all that stuff afterwards. But sports, nobody says, well, I'll just DVR the Super Bowl and watch it the next morning. Everybody wants to watch it. So that's the one thing that is actually DVR-proof. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing advertisers will still pay for because those, those will generate. People, like I said, people don't, don't love – people haven't stopped loving sports. The demand for sports is still enormous. So what you have to do is you have to have the live rights. And the good news for ESPN is we've got Monday Night Football. We've got baseball coverage Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, three games a week for the next four years. We've got the college football national playoff. That's the championship. And we've got it for like the next 10 years. We have the NBA Finals locked up on ESPN and ABC for a number of years.
number of years. So all these major events are still on ESPN, and you just try to capitalize on all those, and I guess just try to to uh, cut back because that's sports and your program. Yeah, absolutely. I guess if we had the answer, we'd be we'd be rich, living on an island somewhere in the Pacific. <laughs> exactly. You know. Um, but let, let's go back. You you were born in in, in Toronto. Um, your parents are from Pakistan. Um, have you ever had a chance to go back? I have not. My, uh, my mom moved from Pakistan to England when she was ten. So all the family on my mom's side is in England. Oh wow! And my dad's family, unfortunately, uh, is either moved to America or or passed away. So I've never actually had a chance to go. So. Hopefully one day. There's there's less impetus, I'm sure, as you know, when there's less people there. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, how do you go from the big smoke to more of an Ontario? Like, I, I don't even know if I've ever heard of that town before. <laughs> but what, what... Not many have. I, uh, yeah, born in Toronto, as you said, big smoke. And then when I was uh, five or six, we moved to Kingston. Uh, which obviously, you know, which is between yep. Toronto and Montreal, 100,000 people, nice little city. And um, we were in Kingston from about six until I think I was about 12, so about six years. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Morven, where I lived for seven years, and then went back to Toronto where I went to Ryerson for college and ended up getting a job there. So um, the simple fact of the matter is my dad worked for OHIP. He was a computer programmer. Okay. And so he transfers from Toronto to Kingston. And then while we were in Kingston, we got a store and a gas station. Uh, first, we were just operating a gas station in addition to my dad working. So my mom would, you know, work in a gas station uh, during the day. And then my dad would come in at night. And then um, I ended up moving to Morven, where it was a gas station and a convenience store. So we wow. had to uh, We literally lived on top of a convenience store. So it was really a family-run operation. I mean, my mom, like I said, would work 9 to 5. And my dad would work, you know, 8 to 4 at OHIP. He'd come home, take a 20-minute nap. And then he'd work from 5 until 10 and come upstairs, have dinner, and go to bed and repeat process. So... My parents are incredibly hardworking and uh, so loving and so supportive. And like for so many of us, the best example you get is from your parents. And uh, yeah. it's been, I've been really fortunate. People at ESPN seem to mention my work ethic or my versatility. And uh, those hallmarks are clearly derived from my parents because I saw from them firsthand. You know, my dad, I, I never saw him complain and he never uh, missed a day of work. You know, literally, it's just he found pride and uh, he found satisfaction in work. You know, whatever vacation we took was to go see family. Uh, my uncle, who passed away last year, was in Georgia, so you know we'd see him, or we'd see my mom's family in Toronto. Um, but otherwise, it was like, that's it. We just work, and then we, when you take time off to see family, that's it. Like It's not like we're taking vacations to the Disney World or the Grand Canyon or stuff that I do now. My wife and my kids, you know, we go to, we take a nice vacation every year to Puerto Rico or something nice like that. But for an immigrant family from Pakistan, it's different. You know, at that, that, at that point in your life, you're just trying to work and get through it, and it's it is really the tale of, of so many, especially in Canada. Middle-class immigrant family yeah, absolutely. comes and builds up a new life, and I'm sure a lot of us, your family and many others, can relate to uh, how successful it can be. Well, that's for sure. Um, I, I understand when you graduated high school, you were... you were. Now, it says on Wikipedia, I don't know if, if, if you've checked out your Wikipedia page, uh, but it says you were a below-average track star. What does that mean? Yeah, incorrect. Somebody else asked me that. I was on, uh... We really got to stop using... Uh... Wikipedia is fact checking, and I'm not criticizing. You. I, actually, <laughs> I actually had I actually had Jessica Alba on my uh, podcast Cinephile, and I had also asked her because on her uh, Wikipedia it says uh, she overcame some issue as a child, like some sort of health issue, which is true. But then it went on to say she had OCD. When I asked her that like two weeks ago, and I met her. She was like, "What?" And she even said, "She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's on my Wikipedia page." Like making a joke and made a face. I'm like, "Oh my god, that's exactly where I got it from." So um, a tip for all of us out there: like, let's. 
Let's avoid that. So I, I don't know who came <laughs> up with that. Michael Landsberg asked me that when I was on PSN Radio. Yeah. And I was like, I've never, I've never done track, and nor, nor would I be listed as a below-average track star. What was the point? Like, I, don't, I don't know how that even works. Like, if you're a track star, then you're a star. You're a star. You'd be, right. You'd be a below-average track athlete. So whoever is uh, hacking into my Wikipedia, I can at least try to be more factually accurate. Yeah, that, um, that was, that was you know, funny I, I, I when I saw that. I love baseball as a kid, played Little League, played hockey just recreationally. Yeah. Uh, you know, typical Canadian small town boy as a kid. Uh, in high school, I played soccer. I was average. Uh, I won most improved player, which is a nice uh, backhanded compliment. It means you go from dreadful <laughs> to acceptable. Uh, I was on the basketball team but didn't play. I was what be known as a uh, bench warmer. Yeah. Uh, but I was a good motivator, good teammate. So, yeah, sports-wise, baseball and hockey as a kid in high school, on the basketball team, on the soccer team. No track at any point in my life. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, you went straight to Ryerson, uh, radio and television arts. Did you know, like in high school or even before that growing up, that you wanted to get into TV? Um, the simple part of it, Kareem, is that I knew, you know, when I saw Goodfellas, it changed my life. I was 12 years old, and I knew I really loved movies. And for me, it's always been movies and sports. Those have been my twin passions. Okay. Um, as a kid, I was a huge Flyers fan because my brother's an Oilers fan, so naturally being brothers were cheered against them because in 85 and 87, mm -hmm. uh, the Oilers and Flyers met in the Stanley Cup, which, which um, it's just such a funny thing. I'm like, and it makes perfect sense to me, but to some, I, find, I guess they find it surprising. They're just like, oh, well, you're from Ontario, Toronto, you're going to be a Leafs fan. But I said, no, I just, I just did whatever I wanted. So when sure. uh, with baseball, you know, again, I just love the sport. So for me, it was always sports and movies were my twin passions. So obviously, I wasn't a good enough athlete, so I knew I wouldn't be a career there. But I really got bit by the bug in movies with high school. And so I really just became obsessed with the films of Scorsese and Pacino and De Niro and particularly that um, decade of the 70s, which I still love, you know, films like Mean Streets and Godfather 1 and 2 and uh, Chinatown and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, which is 1980, but made in, in the 70s. So all those films really had an impact on me. So when I was, you know, 15, 16, I was thinking I wanted to be a director. Now, wow. again, I knew, you know, a son of an immigrant family, they're not going to pay ten grand a year for me to go to Ryerson to, so I can just go be a film student. But that's just not going to happen. I'm sure you know yeah. South Asian family. It's, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Right? Absolutely, so, yep. What the hell is that? <laughs> so um, I cleverly figured out broadcasting would be a happy medium. And, in fact, my guidance counselor uh, at Ernest Town Secondary School, where I went to high school, suggested to me, he said, someone like you, um, who clearly has a strength when it comes to public speaking and reading and writing, you know, that, that aptitude you would probably served well in the media, and you seem to have an interest in media arts. Mm -hmm. So there's a school called Ryerson Radio and Television Arts, and he said, if you go there, I think, whether it's broadcasting or writing or whatever you're into, he said, I think you'll find your passion there, you know, with, the, with all the interest in pop culture, et cetera. And so I kind of thought what I would do is I would go there, and my parents would agree with that, because, all right, broadcasting, that sounds like a good profession, bachelor of arts, you do whatever. And my plan was I would go there, and then because I couldn't major in film because nobody they wouldn't accept that, so I was like, I'll do broadcasting, and then I'll segue to film. So what I did was I still remember my first day of class, we went around the room, and the teacher asked us, Russ Holden, what we were going to be, and I said, uh, I'm going to be a director like Martin Scorsese because he was my hero. Mm -hmm. And I had read a book called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. It's one of my favorite books. This is about the movies of the 70s. And those directors, and Robert Altman, of course, the great director of Nashville and Nash and so many movies, he was a TV director and then segued to movies. So that was my thought. I said, I'll be a TV director and build up some acclaim and then go into movies. And what happened is that, you know, in, in, and I, I, I love writing as well. So the writing and screenwriter, great. And I like performing as well. And not necessarily as an actor, but I still care. Broadcasting works. So I do love sports. We'll figure it out. 
And so in my second year, I did a, a student film, and it was just atrocious. And I, <laughs> and what happened is, it wasn't even that it was so bad. Like, it was okay, but I, I just, I really understood in that process that you have to have, not only an aptitude something, but to match the skill set. And what I try to tell people when they look for advice, you know, it's not, it's obviously true what, you know, Confucius say, find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Sure. But you also have to have a skill set that matches that. So, meaning... When I, when I had to do it, I realized, you know, if you ever try to make a short film, you've got to be able to storyboard, and you have to have a strong visual sense. And I don't have that. I'm very verbal, and um, I use my skills with, with, like I said, reading and writing. I don't, I don't see things visually. Like, if you and I are having a conversation, you know, a great director, they view it through cinematic and visual terms, which I don't do. And I realized that as I was storyboarding, as I was shooting it, you know, the film was very flat. It just wasn't, mm. wasn't what you expected that. So, you know, I've had, I told that story to Reese Waters, who's a buddy of mine who was at ESPN. He was like, well, I don't understand. Like, just because you made one lousy movie, you could have made another one. I said, no, but I, but I knew in the process that it wasn't what my skill set was. Okay. So then I said, well, maybe I could do some writing and be a screenplay uh, writer. But then, I, again, I did the writing, and I said, well, this is difficult, too. Like, I, I think it's all right, but I don't have enough general ideas. I don't have enough of that creativity. And it really takes a lot of stamina. Like, writing takes an incredible amount of endurance. So I said, well, I do like to talk. I do like to perform. Broadcasting is a natural fit. I do love sports. So then when I was in my third year at Ryerson, I had just interned that summer. I applied for an internship at TSN. I got that internship, and then I focused. There was an on-air course specifically that I focused on. And at that point, I was 20, but I said, okay, now I'm going to try to be a sportscaster. And then uh, I was working at TSN. That internship was successful, and shortly after graduation, well, actually, that's shortly. It was a couple of years after that. I finally got an on-air job at Omni. Then went to the score, which was sports. And then from then on, I was on my way. But no, in answer, the long-winded answer to your question is I did not know in like high school that I was going to be a sportscaster. Although my dad points to a tape. You know, we have these camcorders yeah, yeah. back in the day, the VHS tape. There is a tape of me when I was like 10 of me like mimicking a reporter. So he always likes to point to that. He says, no, I remember at 10 you would, you would like mimic being a reporter. So I guess maybe that journalism gene was in there somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah, nice. Um you hosted Omniculture, something on Omniculture, like you said, Bollywood Boulevard? Yeah. What was, yeah. What was that all about? <laughs> um, what happened was, well, this is another thing, when people want to be on air, they just assume, like, oh, well, you want to be a sportscaster, you'll do sports. But much like an actor, you don't get to pick the part. You just audition for everything and hopefully you get one. And, again, the guys at TSM were awesome to me. You know, David Amber, James Duffy, Darren Detition, Rod Smith. Because they were kind enough to see me behind the scenes, being a production assistant, putting together highlights, story editor, archiving, at 22 and 23, and recognizing that I had this aptitude and this ambition to be on air. And credit to them that they they nurtured that. They said, "Yeah, you should be. You can be one of us one day. Like, there's there's no reason that can't be." And you have mm -hmm. to have not only a belief in yourself, but it's important that others who you respect and and will actually see in you what you hope to see in yourself. So. That was validating, and so I was just trying to get a job. But like I said, I couldn't. I couldn't get a job on it. The hardest thing to do to be a broadcaster is to get that job, and it's a really double-edged sword. So you know, you're 22, you're, you're graduating from Ryerson, uh, you know, you're applying for jobs, and I applied for a job at Sudbury as a sportscaster, and I drove up there, and and the guy was really nice, Mark Oldfield and David Amber, who was an anchor reporter at TSM, put a good word for me because he worked for this guy, mm -hmm. and he said, you know, ultimately you made the short list, but. You know, you came up short, and, I, and, he, and he said, the reason why is you don't have any experience. And then I applied for another job at the Weather Network in Toronto, and I obviously didn't know anything about weather, but again, you want to be on air, you just, just go for it and see. Yeah. And I auditioned, didn't get that, and then in Kingston, so back in you know, where I grew up, there was the CKWS, which is the 
local channel, sports job, drove home. I said, this would be a nice little story. I go to Toronto for college. I go back, live with my parents. And again, the guy said to me, he goes, if anybody, I always keep track of all those who call the most. And he says, you easily led in all the applicants that you called like every day, which, you know, shows that you're ambitious. So I thought I had that. Like, Listen, I know where the Memorial Center is. I can cover the Kingston Frontenacs. Like, I know the Ontario Hockey League. I know all the streets. I'm ready to go. Didn't get that job. And um, a TVO Kids I applied for. And wow. again, I didn't, why not? Be a kid. So I didn't get sure. that job. And so the constant refrain was just that, you know, we need somebody with experience. But this is a real chicken and egg situation. How can you, if you're just at a college, get a job if you don't have any experience? Hmm. Because, you know, what, what, what can you do? The whole, everything you keep hearing is you need some experience, but then when you apply for the job, well, you don't have enough experience. Yeah. So it's really tough. So I, I really um, recognize the frustration of young broadcasters who tell me their stories because I said I, I was right there with you. I thought I would graduate in June of uh, 2000. I was 22. I'm like, oh, I'll get a job. A couple months ready to go, but it took me two years wow. before finally Omni was willing to give me a chance. And, you know, I was fortunate. I was working at TSN. I was working in sports, um, but it was dangerous. I remember Michael Landsberg said to me, because this is a tough spot. What's going to happen is you're going to keep working here. You're going to become a producer. And then 10 years later, you're making good money, but you're not on air, which is what you wanted to be. And then you'll just have settled because you've got a wife and a kid, et cetera. And he was like, just quit. Like, you've got to quit TSN. And literally, it's better to be a waiter and be doing part-time volunteer work at Rogers on air just to get experience rather than be stuck here because it's, it's a good job to have and you'll, you'll kind of get mired in it rather than taking a chance. Huh. So thankfully my dad had seen something in the Toronto Star about Omni hiring and uh, it was for interstitials, interstitial host and it was when Letterman used to be on Omni yes. and Cecilia would do those interstitials. Yeah. That's so right. basically it was, like, it was like a bridge from one show to another. So uh, in my audition I did something about how I love movies and it was like a two minute kind of interstitial. And so after the stamp, Paul Costarino on me, called me, and he said, you didn't get the job. And at this point, I, I really did feel like I'm never going to get a job on here. I mean, wow. that sounds funny to say that now you're 24, but like you're 0 for 6 at that point. You go, I, don't, I just don't think it's going to happen. So when he called and said, you didn't get it, I was like, all right, you know, that's no surprise. But he said, but I do have something else to offer you. But there's a show we have called Bollywood Boulevard. I'd like you to host it. So I said, well, I don't, you know, I love movies, but I don't. And my parents obviously love Bollywood movies. I know I meet the budget. I know the obviously the major old yeah, actors. Yeah. I don't. I'm not uh, contemporary with it. You know, I don't know what's going on here. And he was like, listen, it's, it's fine. Like, we have a producer, Nalan Bakhle, who's from Mumbai. He knows all these Indian movies. Like, he, he'll help you with, like, pronunciations and such. And I was like, all right, like, because I'm not going to know Ashwarya Rai and Abhishek Bachchan and all these things. I'm like, I'm going to have to learn all this lingo and stuff. He said, don't worry, we'll help you out. And so I quit my job at TSN. I was an associate producer. I was making 45000 a year hmm. uh, to take the job at Omni, which was... Per shift, it was 215 bucks a shift. Wow. So I'd be, so I was like, all right, 850 bucks a month, but that's what Michael told me. That's what Mark Jacobson had told me, or a good friend of my producer. Like, you're going to have to cut the cord. You have to quit TSN to go get get a gig and go from there. And after two weeks of Bollywood Boulevard, Stan called me in and said, hey, listen, you're doing a great job. There's actually another show called Omniculture, which is about all shows. So basically, we take all the shows on Omni, which is a multicultural channel. So whether it's South Asian, Greek, Italian, Portuguese, Tamil, uh, Asian, Japanese, etc., and then we just package it into a show called Omniculture, and it airs a ton. It'll be on Rogers Channel 10 all the time, and it'll be on Omni, and he goes, you can do that for us, and that's literally just a repackaging of the best stories of the week, and so that was like 350 a shift, and that was once a week, so it's all right, between the two, I'm making 550, 565, all right, two grand a month, you know, 500 bucks a month for rent, like I did the numbers, I was like, all right, I could do this. Uh, and I remember my cousin was like, this is a pretty big risk here. You're, you're losing at least ten to $15,000. Uh, 
I said, but I'll be on air. Like, at least I can say I'll yes. be on air and yes. hope they'll develop. And it was uh, a wonderful experience. You know, Stan was great to give me that opportunity. Lydia Ferrer was a wonderful producer uh, who quickly recognized my ambition and aptitude that I was not somebody who was well-versed in Bollywood movies, but I was somebody who loved broadcasting and was willing to put the best effort I could. And I'd be a good teammate. And my co-host, Melissa Boggitz, was great. And um, Susie Suarez. And they were all wonderful. They all... They all recognize that, okay, clearly this guy's using this as a stepping stone to get towards sports, um, but that doesn't mean he's going to half-ass and they'll put in the effort. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I started there in September of 2002. Uh, I believe I left in January of 2014. I can't totally remember the numbers, but I would say it was a, bit, it was a solid year and a half, and um, I'm always grateful. Like, without that, you need to get your first break as an actor. You need to get that first job. Without Omni, I never would have had anything else that I, I got in my career. Wow. And so was the score after you got Omni? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to get the score without Omni because then I Okay. I was working yeah, I was working Omni for at least eight months. I started in September of O two and then around uh, January, so four months later, Nick Choney, who was one of the four directors, a great guy, said to me, I I gotta ask you, because every time I we get a break in the show, you know, you go down the hall and you're like watching sports. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, what are you doing hosting Bollywood Boulevard and Omniculture? And I said, well, I'd like to be a sportscaster. I worked at TSN for four years, but you know, all the sports jobs I applied for, I didn't get. And he said, well, my cousin is the guy who runs the Score Television Network, which was this relatively nascent network. It was not TSN, it was not Sportsnet, but it was a lot of highlights. Yeah. And it was young and up and coming. It's all put in the word for you. And then sure enough, Nick did that, which is enormous. Like this is... This is all about knowing the right person and somebody putting the word for you. And Anthony called me and said, I've seen you a little bit. I think you're all right. I think you could use some more reps. I think you need uh, need some more work. But I do think you've got something there, so let's keep in touch. And Nick says you're a great guy, which is first and foremost for me. I want to hire good people, so uh, we'll be in touch. And then a few months later, Anthony called me again in March since I've been watching more of you because Dan was right and Zach Varakadis was right who ran Omniculture. He said, the show's going to be on a ton. And Anthony would say, like, I'm just – flipping channels here and I would just see you on I'd watch you for 10 seconds 20 seconds couple minutes so the fact that that show Omniculture was on so much he was able to see me a little bit and then Anthony said come in for an audition and then I did the audition and I got hired by the score just as a voiceover guy in April of uh, whatever it was 2003 I want to say 2002 I think mm -hmm. no 2000, April 2003 excuse me yeah so I then and then I started to get I wasn't on air until July of that year doing updates for horse racing Wow. which I knew nothing about, but thankfully I didn't have to talk about the horse racing. It was updating what else was happening in sports. Um, so, yeah, I remember I remember being happy at the state. You know, me and my buddy Cabby, of course, we went to Ryerson together, and Cab and I both got the job at the score. Like, we went we went together. Nice. Uh, because another guy, Steph Gunn, had been there as well. So, yeah, I was, um, I'd actually worked. If you, It's really circuitous, but I'd actually, me and Cab, when we were at Ryerson, worked at what was headline sports at the time. So this was in my second year at Ryerson. We were both 20. And what happened is I only stayed there for a month, maybe six weeks, and then I quit because I had applied for the TSN Best, which was an intern scholarship, through Ryerson. So then I got that. So I quit Headline Sports, which was interning or, or paltry sum, sure. to go get the job at TSN. So when I got the on-air job at the score, four years later, there was a couple of guys who remembered. They're like, hey, you look really familiar. And I was like, well, I was here for like a cup of coffee. It was six weeks. Me and Cabby started together. Like, oh, yeah. And at that point, Cab had just started doing Cabby on the Street, which was, of course, an enormous success and got him going. So yeah. very, very few people. You'd have to win some serious trivia if you knew that I actually was at Headline Sports for, like I said, a month or two and then went to TSM for four years behind the scenes and then actually returned to what was then the score 
and was on air, like I said, just voiceover and then eventually on air. And then what ended up being a solid six years of being on air and, of course, course surfing and hosting the Raptors games. And, and, and again, it goes back to somebody putting the word for it. It had to be Nick telling his cousin Anthony, getting the chance, and then Anthony watching me saying, all right, here's an audition, here's the opportunity, and then you got to make the most of the opportunity. And Dave Rutherford, the news director, and all the guys, like it was, you know, I hope that anybody who, who takes stock of this realizes that there's a lot of a long winding road within the journey, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no straight line. Uh, to anywhere, but one of the things that I've realized is that there's a lot of alumni from the score and headline sports that are um, like all over the place, uh, doing a lot of great things, continuing to do a great to do a lot of great things in in sports broadcasting, whether it's at TSN or uh, Sportsnet or yourself down at ESPN. There's really a lot of graduates from there. Yeah, you know, we used to joke kind of like the Expos of '94, this great team of young stars that nobody was paying enough attention to. Thankfully, there was no strike that derailed us like in Major League Baseball. The Expos obviously didn't move after that. But you're right. I, I one time joked to Anthony a few years ago. I, you know, of all those guys, you should be credited. Like you know, like the Godfather, you brought up all these people: Elliot Friedman of hockey in Canada, yeah, a good buddy from college, roaring success in not only in sports but now at TSN. Tim and Sid, of course, who dominated the sports, and they were great guys. You know, literally, that was some of the most fun we had to score because our cubicles were all with each other, all desks were right next to each other. So it was literally me, Sid, Tim, Cab, and then the score tonight producer Todd Macklin, who's hilarious. My good friend Sunil Thackle, Karen, who was the uh, the spin producer, which was the hockey show. Sonny and I still keep in touch. Dave Katsos, who was my producer on the NBA stuff. So you're right; it, it's pretty wild if you think now in 2017, back in 2008. Literally, me, Tim, and Sid and Cab were, were always together and, and had a good friendship. And like I said, Friedman at CBC, Sid and Tim at Rogers, Cabby's there, Martine Guyard now back at Sportsnet, Brendan Dunlop, who was a, a researcher and a terrific guy, is now on air at Sportsnet. So that's that. Like when I see him now, when I go back to Toronto, that's how those guys at TSN feel were on air when I was behind the scenes. It's like, oh my God, I remember when Adnan was grabbing tapes or whatever in the archives, and now they see hmm. me on ESPN. So it's, it's pretty wonderful. The journey's gone. You know, but uh, Steve Coolius obviously worked at TSM for a bit. Tony Ambrosia was on there at Sportsnet. I mean, there's, there are so many names, you're right, from that era uh, who ended up doing really, really solid work. So I, I take that as a testament not only to all of us who had a good team, but also to Anthony and Dave for, for recognizing that and uh, giving us that opportunity. Yeah, it definitely had to be great training ground, for, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Now, before you get to ESPN, you're you're doing, like, stuff with Raptors TV, Leafs TV, right? Yeah, so I ended up leaving the school. What happened was Anthony was telling me, you know, all along he was like, you know, you should really try to get to the states. And I was like, well, my, are you trying to get rid of me here? What's going on? <laughs> he was just like, and he just said, no, I think that you know, certain guys again have that uh, skill set and have that ability to thrive. <clears throat> and his view was that south of the border there would be more opportunities. And he was just like, listen, there's more money, there's more opportunities. Someone like yourself, at the time I was single, he's like, I don't know why he wouldn't go for it. So I had. I got an agent. Um, I'd asked Dave Rutherford, who was a news director, who was a great guy, uh, one of the guys who used Robert Smith as a college football analyst, who later I would work with at ESPN. But at the time, we just used some freelance stuff for the score. He got his agent's numbers. I sent my tape to him. He passed, but, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But here's another agency. Maybe you're interested. Went to them. They said no. So I was, you know, used to the rejection in my head. I'm like, well, I went over <laughs> six before I had an on-air job, so yeah. two for an agent isn't a big deal. So thankfully, the third guy said yes. It was Mark Turner at Abrams Artists in New York. He said, absolutely. He said, just come down to New York, and we'll talk, and we'll see what happens. So I drove down with my buddies, and we went down, I think, went to a ball game, and had a good time in New York, and I figured I might as well uh, 
give us a chance, and, and he was great. It was Mark was like, no, I like your tape, and you know, I'll, I'll work for you, and you don't have to sign anything. Um, we get a job, and you get 10%. If not, we just, we'll just we figure it out. So I said, great. So handshake deal. I went back, and Mark was looking. You know, he sent my tape to MLB Network, uh, to Fox Sports, I think, to NBA, whatever it was at the time. And they would be complimentary, but there was no no yeses. You know, maybe a little bit of sniffing, like, okay, not bad, we'll see, but then we wouldn't get back to us. This is probably around 08 or 09. And um, meantime, at the score, I was just starting to get really frustrated because they were obviously changing things. And uh, a lot of my shows were getting canceled. So what mm. happened was that ML, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, Raptors and Leafs TV, had made me an offer. I had like an informal conversation with Aaron LaFontaine. And he had said, hey, we'd love to hire you. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm not, not really in that, in that place right now. I think that was in 08. And, uh, you know, I said, but thanks for your interest. And then... I ended up doing the next year, and I would, you know, like I said, I've been doing stuff on the Raptors, but I got moved to a morning show, Spoon in the Morning, and Nikki Reyes is great and wonderful to work with, and Chad Walker, our producer, but the show was canceled after four months, and I did an NFL show with Tony Mandrich, and then that got canceled after I worked with Steve Christie, who was great, and NFL Blitz, I think, got canceled, which I used to do on the weekend, so it just felt like I was like, all the shows that I'm doing here are getting canceled, and obviously the score was going through a transitional time, and it wasn't anything personal against me, like everything was kind of being reevaluated and reduced, but naturally, when you, you put your heart and soul in something, you start to see it get, get evaporated. Yeah. You know, I kind of started to feel like the writing was on the wall. Maybe I should get going. And, and the whole plan and Anthony had been hoping for me as the boss. Was I would get something in the States, but then I hadn't gotten anything in the States. And then I just, uh, after the morning show got canceled, I remember getting into a spat with one of, one of my uh, superiors, and I just realized, you know, I should get going now because uh, it just it just felt like the right move. So I called up the guy at MLSC again, Aaron LaFontaine, and this is a year later. I said, let's have another conversation. And this time I said, yeah, I want in. Like, I'm, I'm ready to get going. So uh, I met with one of the other bosses there and then went back to my boss at the score. And Greg Sansoni, who was on air, was a good guy, was now our boss. And I just said, listen, you know, MLSC, they're willing to make me their number one guy. And I recognize that it's not going to get seen as much as the score, but I just feel like I've been marginalized at the score, and I've had all these shows canceled. And it's, mm-hmm. it's nothing personal. It's been a great run. I love the people I work with, but but seriously, I just feel like I'm not I'm not one of your guys. Like I feel like you guys really love Sid and Tim and Cab and Martine and and whoever else who coolies at the time. I just feel like I'm kind of the odd man out. And you know, again, nothing personal, but you just know. I think anybody knows when it's time to leave a job is probably for the best. And uh, so then I went to MLSC. And they were great. It was a very brief run. I wish it had been longer, but that was in uh, June of '09. So I left the score after six, a little over six years. They gave me a really nice going away party, and I went there. And I didn't know anything about soccer, and I had to follow Toronto FC. But I quickly realized how great Toronto is for soccer fans and how much people love the soccer team. So I did that for the summer, and then Leafs TV and Raptors TV. So it's all under the same umbrella. Yeah. Uh, the old Gold TV, which is soccer, and then. So for the Leafs stuff, Andy Petrillo was the main host, and then I would do some stuff there. And then Raptors, I was the primary host, and Andy would do some stuff there as well. And I got to work with Sherman Hamilton, who's a wonderful guy, and Leo Routens and Jack Armstrong, of course, very familiar names to anybody who follows basketball in Canada. Those guys were awesome to me. Um, but it was fleeting in that um, in October of '08, I had actually interviewed at ESPN. So what had happened was that my agent had reached out to Lori Orlando, who was the talent office head at the time and she said I don't have a job for him but I do like his tape if he wants to come down I'd love to meet him so I I drove down with my wife and my son Yusuf at the time was only six months old wow. and we drove down to Connecticut literally nine hours and um, and I literally we stayed the night I got up I met Lori I met another guy named Dave Roberts who would later be one of my bosses at ESPN 
And then I drove back, and then I asked Mark, my agent, how to go, and Lori had emailed him saying, if I had an opening, I'd hire him tomorrow. And I was like, all right, here we go. So that was October of 08 while I was doing the morning show, which wasn't doing very well, which was just tough to do. You're up at 4 a.m., and I, I didn't feel like we had the support of the company. It was just it was a really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. No fault of anybody that I worked with. So what happened is that you know while you're waiting for a job to happen, if it doesn't happen, then you're in trouble. So think of the, the mindset in my head, October 08 interview, I'm hoping ESPN is going to hire me in a couple months. Instead, the months pass and then nothing. So by June of 09, it's now been eight months. Wow. I'm thinking, I don't know what's happening. I should get going. So that's when I quit the score saying, all right, well, I don't know if ESPN is going to happen, but the score doesn't feel right anymore. I go to MLSC, and then I still was keeping in touch that fall, you know, September, October, November, December. You do a little bit of hockey, and the basketball started. And then finally, the last thing, I was getting just tired myself of pestering Lori. And David Amber, who's a good friend of mine, who, again, I'd mentioned – I worked with him at TSN. He was a reporter anchor there while I was behind the scenes. He's now at ESPN. Mm-hmm. So he's there telling me, hey, I'll keep you up to date. And he was invaluable as far as letting me know the lay of the land. And then he was emailing, and all they hired a guy named Don Bell or Steve Weissman or Max Bredos. And I said, okay, I really think the train's going. So January of 2010, I, I emailed Lori to say Happy New Year's. You know, hope all's well. And then she wrote back and said, hey, great to hear from you. You know, I'm looking to hire somebody if you got a tape send it right away and then I was like oh, okay now I'm back in the game and that's another good lesson for people out there like think about that I interviewed in October of 08 at ESPN I ended up getting the follow-up in January of 2010 wow I ended up, get, I ended up doing my interview uh, the day after Valentine's Day so February 15th I then got offered the job a month later and then I started at ESPN in May of 2010 so October of 08 to May of 2010 is the time between I first set foot at ESPN and then I actually got the job. So in the meantime, I left the score, went to MLSC, convinced that whether or not ESPN was going to happen, at the very least, I had to leave the score. Mm-hmm. And I felt awful when I left MLSC because I had signed a two-year contract, but I left after nine months. But Chris Hebb, the boss, was wonderful because he said, listen, I'm not going to stand in your way. If ESPN's column, that's great. So uh, thankfully, he was understanding and receptive to it. Yeah, well, now going to the states, how I mean, how was that for you? Um, you know, did you follow a lot of American, you know, you know, Toronto guys? So you're following, you know, hockey. You're following the Raptors and stuff. But how was it going to the states? Was there a lot of trepidation uh, that that you had for that? Uh, you know, I don't. I didn't think no, not much trepidation because I, I like I said, I love baseball. I love the NFL. So those are not issues. I covered mm-hmm. the NBA the score six years, and I was doing Raptors TV. Uh, hockey, I knew they didn't do a lot of ESPN, but obviously I knew hockey being Canadian. So I said, all right, the only challenge is to be college sports. College basketball, I'd actually covered quite a bit at the score. Okay. Uh, a couple of years we had the tournament, and me and McAuliffe had both co-hosted it with Sherm and a guy named Mick Cronin, who's now the coach at Cincinnati. And so I was the only one that was a little bit concerning maybe was college football, which I had not grown up watching. You know, McAuliffe is a big fan. Cavie is a big college football fan, but I was not particularly growing up. So that was the only one that in my head I'm like, you know, it could be a little tricky. Yeah. And ESPN definitely was hesitant about it. I remember in the interview process, they did ask me, you know, what's your college football knowledge like? But they definitely, and Amber had warned me that. Because they're going to try to sniff you out as a guy, is this Canadian? He may know the Oilers' flames, but we couldn't care less about Edmonton, Calgary, and America. You're going to have to know Alabama and Auburn and Ole Miss and Oregon and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, Going in, I really didn't, but I but I figured, you know what, once you're there, you can acclimate to it, and I've been fortunate enough to do so. I mean, I think if you're a sports fan and you understand the sport, you can pick it up. It'd be a lot harder if I was doing, 
you know, cricket, of which I, I don't even know anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? But if you're a football fan, you go, well, it's NFL or CFL or college football. It's just a matter of learning the teams and the personnel, and you go from there. Nice, nice. Now you're one of the main anchors uh, for baseball tonight. That's that's a huge gig. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, it was definitely, I remember when I started talking to Lori, uh, who, again, speaking of people in baseball, like she's the one who had to, to first get me in there. She's the one who believed in me. And I said to her, I said, you know, one of, one of three gigs, I think, I couldn't be happier. It would be if I could have my own sports center, because that would be ownership of, of the, the, state, the, the flagship property. If I could be one of the hosts of Sports Nation, which is a really fun show, which because I love movies, I'm like, oh, I can do some pop culture stuff there. And Michelle Beal and Colin Coward were the host at the time, and they were great. I said, or baseball tonight. Baseball is my favorite sport. I grew up loving baseball. Uh, you know, obviously the Jays, and then I went back to back in 1993. I was 14, 15 years old. Like those memories never fade from you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I love the show. I literally I would get paid to watch baseball, hang on the analysts. And um, again, I met with Mike McQuaid early on, who was the guy who ran it, and uh, he was kind of like the refrain of my career was like, all right, well, thanks for your interest, but not interested, and, and not in a, in a malicious manner, but just, hey, listen, like I've got my guys who were Carl Robinson, Steve Perfume. Like he's just like not having enough. Now, rooms at, at the hotel, like, I'm glad you're interested, but there's no spot for you. So at least I told him I was interested a couple times. Maybe Bert was, was off on holidays. I filled in a couple times, which was a real thrill. You know, a year and a half in, I got to host baseball tonight at least once or twice. And what happened, again, I was fortunate in that Steve Berthume, who was one of the hosts, ended up wanting to do play-by-play, and so he took the job as the play-by-play host at the Arizona Diamondbacks. And at that point, I had hounded Mike so much that he knew I was interested. And then me and another guy, John Shambi, ended up splitting roles. So I started it at ESPN in May of 2010. I then became officially one of the hosts of Baseball Tonight, you know, three years later. And then, you know, the last couple of years, been, been me and Carl Raps have been the, the two hosts. So it's uh, it's awesome, man. I, I love baseball. I think it's an incredible sport. I'll never get tired of it. I think there can be challenges with the sport. Certainly, it's you know, it's an older white demographic. It's... Um, they have made inroads, in fact. Of course, the Latino influence is enormous for the Dominicans, but they need to have more black athletes. You used to have 25% of, of baseball players were African-American in, like, 1986, and now it's in 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of times people focus on the challenges of baseball rather than what's great about it. You know, People will say, oh, today's ADD, and people are on their phones, and it doesn't move fast enough, but it's slow. And then you watch the playoffs last year, and everybody's enraptured, especially in Canada. Oh, yeah. I know what, the, the ratings were unbelievable back in, the, in Canada. Like when I saw them, like, I was trying to tell Americans that, you know, like 5 million people were watching all these playoff baseball games. Put that in perspective, that's a country of 30 million. That's like 50 or 60 million Americans watching a game. Like it was, it's awesome. And I think that's like any sport. If the team is doing well, if the hometown team is doing well, the people doing it. They realize how great it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a ton of fun. So it's, uh, it's been a real dream for me. Nice. Now, when did it occur to you, or, or did you, like, understand or realize that, you know, I, I know there's a lot of, uh, now there is, you know, a, a really a handful of Canadians, um, but to be the first Muslim sports anchor, um, did that did that hit you, or did it? Did you sort of realize it later, and, and does that mean anything to you at all? Absolutely. I mean, it was, um, it, it's definitely a situation where, when I first auditioned, I had talked to Jaffe, who was one of the guys in the talent department, and I had he kind of just casually mentioned it. Like, I, and I, so I definitely was aware of it. Answer your question. I brought it up. I, you know, would I be the first Muslim 
hired yeah. by ESPN, and he said, yeah, he goes, like, he kind of paused, like, I don't know if there's any black Muslims along the way, like, he kind of, he wasn't sure, like, he was almost checking his mental Rolodex, but he's like, no, I think, yeah, he'd be the first Muslim, definitely anchor, he goes, I don't, I don't know, maybe we had a football analyst, maybe, but yeah, definitely the first anchor, and I said, oh, cool, so it's, it's not something that I thought a ton about, but obviously being a Muslim, being somebody that practiced my faith, you know, I knew that it would be something that would just be a source of pride, and it was always nice, even growing up in Toronto, going to the mosque and you know, having kids thinking, well, I didn't know you were Muslim, but then, you know, I saw you on the score. My dad said that you're Muslim. He saw you at the mosque one time, or he didn't know that you you, know, you were fasting. Like, so somehow, you know, word gets around in the community, I'm sure you know. Sure, uh, sure. Somebody, here's one thing. So it was, yeah, it was just a source of pride. But, look, on a day-to-day basis, it was not something I was thinking about, but I definitely was aware of it. It's only the last few years, unfortunately, with the rise of Islamophobia and the popularity of President Trump, and that's become a real issue again. You know, it was... For anybody who's Muslim, you know that the, the two tent poles was after 9/11, yeah. and now, unfortunately, with the rise of ISIS, and it's uh, it's been awfully disconcerting and it's unfortunate. But I have uh, the wonderful backing of my bosses, and John Skipper is an incredible president, and somebody who I've talked to about the challenges facing Muslims, and he's acutely aware of them. You know, he's a he's a white Southerner, so he's not somebody who grew up around <laughs> mosques. You know, he yeah. he grew up around churches. He's somebody himself who told me he's not religious. His wife. His wife's family, I believe, is quite religious, but he himself is not. But but he's incredibly tolerant and liberal-minded and supportive. And he has said to me, "You have any sort of anti-Islamic comments or any anti-Muslim comments from anybody? You know, you tell me." And thankfully, whatever incidents I may have had or comments have been, have been very, very minor. And, and overwhelmingly, my my colleagues and um, and all my coworkers have been supportive. And that kind of just said to me, "Hey, listen, ignore what Trump says, or we're behind you, or this is true, the way you guys are getting scapegoated or um, targeted and." You know, like I said, I don't want to make a big deal of it every day. Sometimes on social media, I've tried to support things. Uh, but oftentimes people will say negative stuff, so you don't want to really get into it a little bit. Sometimes you can't really help it. If someone says something upsetting about you, you're going to go back to them a little bit. But generally, I try to take the high road and not get into it. But, you know, even yesterday, somebody tweeted me saying, I think that's really cool that you publicly acknowledge that you're Muslim. And uh, especially in the state, it's good to see it. I was like, all right, well, thank you very much. You know, it's, it's, I, I appreciate that people appreciate that. Nice, nice. Um, I, I want to take a quick a detour away from uh, sports and get into movies. Um, your, your, your podcast, Cinephile, um, tell me a little bit about that. What do, you, what do you discuss on that, and what's it all about? Yeah, I've been, I've been lucky in that. Like I said, those twin passions of mine were always movies and sports. And so I've got the sports thing down. You know, I've been able to say I've worked in sports since I was 18, uh, which is when I – no, 19, excuse me, when I first started interning at TSN. And I'm turning 39 this summer, so that'll be 20 years in sports television in a matter of a few months. And I've been on air. When I first got the job at Omni, I was 24. So that was September of 2002. So, you know, fast forward a few more months, I'll be, I'll be looking at a pretty good run here in terms of 15 years of being on TV. So I've, I've been really fortunate to be able to explore those twin disciplines. But the movies have always been there. I've always been a huge movie addict. And anybody that knows me knows how much I love movies. And so I've been filling in on ESPN Radio for about five years and a little bit discouraged I haven't been able to get my own show. So what I did was I met with the guy who runs the podcast and is heavily involved with the radio, and I just said, listen, everyone seems to be all over the podcast. And maybe it's an oversaturation point right now. Maybe there's too many podcasts. Sure. But, I, but I'd love to give it a go. And um, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, what if I did a podcast about movies? You know, I'll call it movie geek or movie freak or something like that and uh, I can just review a movie which is what I always wanted to be like after the things didn't work out with being a director and a screenwriter I, I did want to be a film critic and even when I was 
working at the score, I remember I would write film reviews and submit them to the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun, Now Magazine, iWeekly. And, you know, I never heard back, but I was always like, oh, this would be great if I could be a film critic on the side. Yeah. You're already getting paid to watch sports. Imagine you get paid to watch movies. This is like the <laughs> dream life. So um, I said, I'd like to review a movie. That'll be my opening, and then I can do a guest. You know, a lot of these actors are actually sports fans. We can get them on, and then we can just think of some segments. And thankfully, Dan Stanzik, who's my producer, is a wonderful guy and a good friend, and he loves movies, and he was to help I'll help you out. And the biggest lesson for anybody, if you want to get your boss to do something, you tell them you do it for free, and they're not going to say no. So once I said I'll do it for free, then I'm sure the floodgates open. So yeah. um, obviously you're not doing it for money. You're doing it just because the passion project because you're into it. And Pete was generous enough, my boss, Pete Genesini, to say, yeah, like if, if you can do it in your own time and Dan's going to produce it, then by all means. You know, you're, you're utilizing the real estate that ESPN's affording. I'm using the ESPN name mm-hmm. to do my own you know, personal passion project. So how nice. fortunate am I? Like if I'm... If I'm working on Bay Street as a banker in Toronto, I don't have this opportunity to do this. But I work for a media company, and E stands for entertainment, and entertainment and sports programming network, which is what ESPN is. Why not? So we did the first from last May. We're, we're right approaching the, the first year anniversary of doing it, and uh, it's been a blast. I mean, it was um, – I think there's been a couple of big tipping points. One was when Robert De Niro came, who was one of my heroes, you know, along with Scorsese and Pacino. He's you know, one of my three favorite – people i think i've emulated my entire life and we got an email in august that he was coming to espn to promote his boxing film hands of stone mm-hmm. and i was actually in williamsport pennsylvania covering the little league world series and but i drove back with my wife and kids uh we now have three boys at the time we had two and my wife was pregnant and we, we literally drove back and i had to work sunday night and then we drove back at eight or maybe nine five hour drive got home at one slept like five hours got up in the morning sitter didn't show had to take my kids and neighbors went in because of course my wife's like you're going to be robert de niro i'm meeting robert de niro because she loves movies as much as i do sure. and, de niro. and so we met him and he was incredible and um when you talk about meeting your heroes and your idols like, he was amazing and he had uh you know he's really a man of warmth and he's, he's humble and he's down to earth and he was very gracious with his time and um i think he clearly recognized what a huge fan i was because i was wearing my tribeca film festival shirt which is of course his film fest he runs in new york mm-hmm. and i had like a little figurine of travis bickle from taxi driver and I had a picture <laughs> of the main street so i think he was definitely like all right obviously this guy is an enormous fan yeah and uh and i articulated that to him like i said you know you're a living legend this is this is incredible for me to meet you and and we had a nice conversation like i said to him you know my son yusuf his middle name is scorsese my firstborn son wow so i said you know there's not a lot of uh, pakistani canadians who are wandering around the time American middle name, so De Niro did laugh, and I said to him, you know, my wife's pregnant with a third child, if uh, if it's a boy, we're, we're thinking about naming him De Niro, and he, you know, he kind of gave you that De Niro smile, and now our son is named Shaz De Niro for the record, which is really cool. Wow. And, uh, you are a fan. Fact, I know, exactly. It's on, the, it's on the birth certificate, like when I, my co-worker's like, no way, I'm like, no, there it is, Shaz De Niro, and, uh, and, and De Niro was awesome, and here's, here's the story what a good guy he is. You know, you meet a lot of athletes, celebrities, whatever. They're gracious with their time. De Niro, after the um, interview was over, at one point when I was talking about Taxi Driver, I said, you know, it doesn't make sense how much I love this movie. I was born in 78. The film came out in 76. And I said, I was born in Toronto. I grew up in Kingston and then in rural Ontario. I was, you know, Pakistani-Canadian. And yet this story about this cab driver set in New York before I was born really impacts me. And I said, it really is a film that young men love. And I remember when I went to Ryerson, I remember that first year at Ryerson, and I remember dealing with feelings of loneliness and, you know, missing my friends and family, being in the big city by myself. I said, Taxi Driver was so therapeutic. Like, it's such an important movie for me because it really, it shows me how cinema is art. You know, I mentioned how Goodfellas changed my life, but Taxi Driver helped enhance it. 
And mm-hmm. Raging Bulls are going to be my favorite movie because I think that's just poetry. And at the end of the interview, De Niro turned to me. And you have to understand this. Normally you interview an athlete, actor, whomever. They shake their hand, all right, thanks, they're out. And as soon as we were done, De Niro turned to me and he just said, uh, Pakistan? And I said, uh, yeah. I said, that's where my family's from. Yeah, I've never actually been. And he kind of started mumbling, and I think at that point it actually hit me. It was so surreal that I'm having a conversation with Robert De Niro. Because the actual interview, I wasn't. I was obviously nervous beforehand, but in the interview, I was I was fine because he, he himself was so gracious. It felt natural that we were having a conversation because I know him and his career so well. Like, mm-hmm. well. There's nothing he can say that will surprise me. But at the end, I think I just kind of started going to panic when I kept having a conversation. So he started mumbling something. And I said, I don't understand. Did, did you take a trip there? Or you did a movie? He said, No, no. I read an article about a group in, in northern Pakistan. He goes, you should read it. It's called the Hindu Kush. You yeah, should check yeah. it out. And he, and, and he said, he goes, just let me know where my people know if you can't find it. And then he gave my wife Amy a hug and kiss goodbye and left. And this is how incredible De Niro is. I had to get now back in the car. I don't forget, I had to go back to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It was a five-hour drive. So I now my heart's racing because I'm like, I hope the interview was good. I, I want to listen to it. I hope that I didn't screw it up. Yeah, I yeah. hope Bob was good. So then I, I picked up my kids. I literally, then I had to drive back. And once I got back to Pennsylvania, five hours later, there's an email. And the subject heading just said from RDN's office. There's only one RDN. Yeah. And you open it up, and it says, hey, Bob wanted to say he really enjoyed meeting you and enjoyed talking in your podcast. Here's that article that he mentioned that he thought you'd be of interest of. And there was a link in there about the Hindu Kush, which is this lost tribe in northern Pakistan, and a really amazing article. And I'm like, this is how incredible Robert De Niro is. Not only did he come to ESPN to promote his film, which a lot of actors are going to do, I guess. Sure, sure. But he felt such a nice enough connection with me, and he took such enough of an interest in me, that when I just casually mentioned my family's ancestry, he followed up. And this is how smart he is. He's not just some actor. Like He actually had some reference point about it. Then, on the way home, or at some point, told a member of his crew, hey, what was that guy's name? All right, make sure you get his email. Make sure you send him that article. I think he'll find that interesting. That, to me... It's extraordinary that I was able to have that kind of a connection with Robert De Niro. That's awesome. And so that was that was a real tipping point for Cinephile. And then, of course, I was able to get to the Oscars because my friend Ben Lyons, who I'd only talked to a couple of times on the radio, he's based in L.A. His dad is a famous film critic, Jeffrey Lyons. Ben himself worked for E! News in his 20s and now is a much better version of me. He loves movies and he loves sports. And he started to listen to Cinephile. And then he had DM'd me on Twitter and said, hey, I'd love to come on to them. I said, yeah, of course you can. And so we did our favorite movies. And then he DM'd me and said, hey, I'm really pushing hard to get to the Oscars because I do some stuff for Oscar.com. And, of course, with my history of being told no, I said, well, I'm used to rejection. Yeah. But a week, week, week later, I got a call from my agent. He said, hey, you're going to the Oscars. Nice. Because of Ben. And, again, this is just like Stan taking a chance on me. This is just like Nick giving me a chance by telling his cousin Anthony giving me a chance. Just like Laurie Orlando at ESPN giving me a chance. Again, this was Ben Lyons, who's just a dude. He's just a 35-year-old guy who mm-hmm. likes the podcast, who then tells his people, because he has connections, of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, hey, this guy Burke could be really good. He's like, not only does he love movies, listen to his podcast, but he's also a broadcaster. And so we're going to do the live telecast on Oscar.com. And sure enough, that happened. And I think after that, people were like, all right, this guy has a podcast on ESPN, but he actually went and covered the Oscars. And, you know, if you Google my name and Google Moonlight, you see the video of me after Moonlight won Best Picture and just what a shock that was. So Cinephile has been unreal, man. To think that I've been doing that for a year wow. and that I met Robert De Niro and that I went to the Oscars and actually covered the Oscars for the Academy and hopefully we'll be blessed enough to do that next year. Um, it's really amazing, man. I'm really, really so blessed. That, that is awesome. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Moonlight. Um, and I yeah. know the year before there was this, uh, this protest uh, because there was no black um, 
uh, nominees or something like that. Right. Yeah, and then this year you, you had Moonlight win. You had uh, Viola Davis, uh, who won an Oscar. Um, and then from Moonlight, you had uh, Best Supporting Actor. Uh, I can't pronounce his name. Mahershala Ali. Yeah, Mahershala Ali. Yep. Yeah. Um, your your thoughts on on Moonlight and and those two actors uh, specifically uh, winning this uh, this past year? Yeah, Mahershala is actually a good friend of my cousin Salim's. Wow. So when I, when he when he started to get a lot of buzz in November, I had asked Salim. I said, "Can you uh, can you hook me up?" And he said, "Yeah." So he gave me Mahershala's contact information, and uh, I texted him, and he got back to me and said, "Yeah, like well, I'd love to do it." And obviously, I know who you are through Salim, and obviously, I watch you as being a big sportsman. So, yeah, let's do it. So he came on Cinephile in November, which was awesome. And uh, so when I actually found out I was going to the Oscars, and like I said, at that point I already knew he was going to get nominated because, you know, I follow this stuff avidly. So I knew, uh, the Oscar buzz was already there for Moonlight when it um, when it opened on the indie circuit. So, like, you know, when it's in October, it's in Toronto, it's in New York, it's in L.A., and then it's in November, and also in okay, Academy, uh, you know, not Academy Awards, but all the other awards. It starts getting mentioned for the Golden Globes and the SAGs and Screen Actors Guild Awards. So I pretty much knew early on, like in November, I should get Mershala now because after that he's going to be unavailable. He's too busy. So again, that helped in terms of validation that he was nice enough to embrace us through the podcast. And then, um, and we just rolled the wave. Like then it was once he started winning everything. I'm like, this guy's going to an Oscar. And um, like on a personal level, like he's going to be the first Muslim to win an Oscar. Like how cool is this? Yeah. So I had uh, texted him before I when I found out I was going to the Oscar. Said, I hope to see you there. And it's you know it's obviously a really chaotic scene down there. And it's interview after interview. But um, Ursula is awesome. When he saw me in the red carpet, he stopped. He hugged it out. And, uh, nice. Said, you know, I'm, I just said, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. You know, I'm so appreciative. You know, of course, man. And his wife had just had a baby on a Friday, so I just said, you know, I talked to Celine. He said, they had the baby. Yeah, man, she just knocked it out. So I thought that was kind of a funny way to describe your wife getting birth. <laughs> and then uh, then I just said, listen, I'm going to be backstage. Like, I'm working for Oscar.com. So when you win, I'm going to see you backstage. And uh, he said, inshallah, which, as you know, is by the grace of God. And I, you know, I've, been, I've been praying for you. He said, no, I know, man. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope it all works out. I gave him a hug. And then afterwards, when he won, it was amazing. So Marshall winning was, was kind of personal. Though. It felt like a friend winning just because sure. I've met him. And like I said, it's been so close to him. And then Viola Davis, she's wonderful in the film. She's a terrific actress. I saw Fences. It's a, it's a wonderful acting showcase. And she's well-deserved to win. Um, so, yeah, I, I know that some people, outsiders, were kind of like, well, are they – is this just a make good because of the fact that Selma was was widely ignored, which I think was 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 awful. Like I really did think that should be a movie that should have had more recognition for Ava DuVernay for um, for Best Director, and that um, you know that the fact that David Oyelowo wasn't nominated for Best Actor for his performance as MLK was really stunning to me. It was a real oversight by the Academy. But then you know the year after there was talk that Creed should be nominated for Best Picture, which I didn't agree with. Uh, they, some people thought the straight out of Compton should have been up for Best Picture, which is a good movie, but I didn't think it should have been up for Best Picture. So it was really tricky. Like, it, it was two straight years of Oscars so white, and I thought, like, yeah, that's what it Selma, was. people absolutely had a case to be upset. But the other films, I was like, you know what? There's other movies that I like more. And in fact, of all the movies that came out last year, my favorite film is a movie that is completely devoid of any color and ethnicities, and that's Manchester by the Sea. And that's just, I mean, I, I hope the knock against it was like, it should just be called Moping by the Sea. It's a bunch of sad white people in New England. <laughs> but, but I, uh, which I thought was funny, but I mean, but that, and again, I live in Connecticut. Like, I live like two hours from where Manchester, I live an hour and a half from Boston. So I, I know this terrain really well. And I'm like, that is, I thought, we're a really dramatic, powerful, emotional movie about grief and suffering. And mm. just because it's, 
about a white guy and Casey Affleck, that shouldn't matter who it is. If it's a great film, it's a great film. Yeah. But I was really happy from her so I was happy with Viola Davis. You know, was, was Moonlight winning a reaction to the fact that black films had been overlooked the last couple of years? Maybe. But Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, is superbly talented. And he was following me on Twitter, so I sent him a DM in December. I said, listen, can I get you on my podcast? And then Barry was gracious enough to get back to me and said, sure. So I actually, when I was on the red carpet before the Oscars, I got to not only see Marshall a lot, but I saw Barry. And his publicist had said, we'll be looking for you. And I saw him. And he's a big sports fan. He'd seen that I'd mentioned him on ESPN. He went to Florida State. And, and we hugged it out. And I said to Barry, I said, listen, I know La La Land's a heavy favorite, but I think you guys have a puncher's chance. I said, I've got you winning for screenplay, and I've got Mahershala winning for supporting actor. And he's like, yeah, man, I think you're right. And I never would have expected four hours later the most surreal ending in the history of the Oscars. Yeah, that was strange. That, that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway had the wrong envelope, and the movement ended up winning. And when, when I saw Barry going nuts, I said, this is so wild. Like, I know him. Like, I just saw him. I just talked to him for <laughs> I've had him on my podcast, and now he just won Best Picture. And I actually I sent him a message a week after, which is like, hey, I hope you realize, a week ago you were a part of the craziest ending ever in the history of the Oscars. And he's like, dude, that night was so wild. And uh, I was saying to my wife, Heyman, like, what if, like, what if Barry Jenkins becomes the next Steven Spielberg? Like, I, I, I consider him a friend now. Like I said, I said, anytime you want to come to his opinion, let me know. He's like, absolutely. I'm like, this is so cool. So it's, uh, it's been a really wild journey. It's been a follow worked out. Nice, nice. We had some, we had some sad news yesterday uh, from the, uh, the movie industry, from the entertainment industry with the passing of Jonathan Demme. Um, I'm not a huge movie guy, but for me, Jonathan Demme is, is, the, is the one who brought uh, more Neil Young to me. I'm a massive Neil Young fan. Um, right. your, your thoughts on, on, on his work? I mean, he's an Academy Award winner, but um, you know, your thoughts on, on what he leaves behind. Yeah, really good director. I mean, obviously, Sons of the Lambs is his, his towering epic. One of my best friends uh, from Kingston and from Morgan is Jeff Lovelock. So I, I tweeted it yesterday, and then Jeff immediately tweeted back to me. He's like, dude, like, Sons of the Lambs is my favorite movie. Like, it's, and it's unreal for a film to have that kind of success at the Oscars. Best picture, best actress, Judy Foster, uh, best actor, Anthony Hopkins, best screenplay, and best director. Like, it's one of the most wildly recognized movies ever in Oscars history. And it still holds up. I'm sure everyone's seen it. Hannibal Lecter, all the famous clips. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's, that's his epic. That's the first thing. You know, the headline, I think, yesterday was like literally Sons of the Lambs director Jonathan Debbie passed away. Mm-hmm. But I think Philadelphia was a powerful movie. Like, Love that movie. Wasn't, wasn't, right? People didn't know much about AIDS, and there was a lot of ignorance about it. And that was a movie that I think really brought the issue of HIV um, to a widescreen public, and, and it helped having Hanks and, and Denzel there and major actors that were willing to buy in. But I thought Demi's style of direction was great. Now, like, I always think of the scene where Tom Hanks is looking right into the camera the way Demi shot that with a close-up, just, excuse me, am I being fired? Mm-hmm. Like, it was just such a, a personal moment. And uh, Married to the Mob is a fun little movie that he did. And uh, Demi certainly was a talented director, had lots of good work. He died at 73. I mean, that feels awfully young. I know that we get... Yeah. Obviously, there, there are many, many artists who die much younger, and it's always a tragedy. But I feel like now life expectancy is 80. So whenever I hear anybody who dies younger than 80, I still feel like they're, they're young. And um, it's definitely a sad loss for the movie world. And like you said, the Neil Young, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's one of those that if you know his work, then you know how far-reaching it was. And he was a huge music lover. So uh, yeah. you're right about Neil Young. When I worked uh, at SportsCenter LA, I filled in with a guy named Neil Everett. who's a terrific actor, really, really funny. And I told him I was from Toronto. He said, the only thing I know about Toronto is Neil Young's from there. I'm like, well, there you go. That's all I need to know. <laughs> nice. Listen, I've had you on for long. I just want to do a couple of quick hits with you. Um, sure. So some quick stuff. Um, you, 
in in baseball, you know, ever, ever it seemed it's been going on for a while, but it seems that when Bautista did his bat flip, everyone started uh, debating on you know its place in sports. And most recently, Chris Bryant, um, you know, says you know he you'll never see him do one, but he's cool with it. Um, you know, your thoughts on this whole idea of celebrating in sports, disrespecting your your opponent or the pitcher. Um, are, are we just making conversation out of nothing, or, you know, is, is there yeah, something I, there? Yeah, I think, yeah, Kareem, I think it's excessive, man. Like, I really don't have a problem with it. I think that people who get frustrated by it need to just appreciate the sports and entertainment. And, listen, I, I get the whole aspect of sportsmanship. You never want to feel like a guy's getting shown up. You know, you shouldn't hit a home run and start pointing at the pitcher and, like, you know, mocking him or shouting sure. profanities or anything absurd. But if you if you just flip the back as you're fired up, then I have no issue with it. And, um Batista specifically, I mean, that, that was a very heated series between the Rangers and the Jays. The Jays felt like they got screwed by the umpires earlier in the game. There was debris being thrown on the field. Two teams really did not like each other. Batista thought that they were throwing him inside. So when he hit that home run, it was a cathartic moment not only for the team, but of course the country, which hadn't had any sort of playoff success mm-hmm. since 1993. So I, I think that was a unique circumstance. In a vacuum, if someone said, well, why is Batista staring him down and throw the bat like that? I guess you can understand it, but if you understood the context, you'd go, "Yeah." And and more to the point, like for an entire country of Canadians, like that that moment will never be forgotten. And that image of the way he threw the bat, like that bat flip picture, is amazing. And if you look at the World Baseball Classic, which was most recently, you know, that showed particularly the Latin players how much fun when they have when they play baseball. And for anybody who thinks yeah. it's boring or slow, like go watch the World Baseball Classic. Those guys are constantly playing music and chanting, and the fans are into it. When they and then when they hit home runs and they make great plays, they celebrate. So I. I have zero issue with exuberance. I myself am an exuberant person. I like people seeing that they're excited. I, I don't think it's poor sportsmanship to be fired up. I think everyone can tell if someone's being rude or crossing the line. And I think generally people need to loosen up and just let them do what they want to do. Yeah. Is Colin Kaepernick coming back to football? I think so. You know, it's tricky because um, obviously his political stance was, was not received well by owners. But I think eventually he'll get a job somewhere. I'm, I'm surprised he has not gotten one yet. Uh, he is not as good as he did it. it was his first couple of seasons. He certainly has been, I don't want to say disappointing, but he's definitely regressed mm-hmm. um, from what he once was. So I, I don't think he's being kept on the league, so to speak, as pure collusion. Um, he went from being a guy who was awfully successful early in a career to a guy who defense has figured out and adjusted and then has really struggled. And that's the primary reason that he can't get a job. But I do think... His politics, the fact that he would not stand for the anthem, definitely went over poorly with some front offices. And I'm sure that there are organizations that are saying, we probably could use this guy, but it's not worth the extra headache with all the other baggage. Uh, but I think ultimately, if you're a great player, nobody cares what kind of person you are. If Colin Kaepernick had 40 touchdowns and five interceptions, he'd have a job tomorrow. But since he was on a bad team and had mixed results and has been kind of up and down since those first few great seasons, that's the biggest detriment to him right now. So mm-hmm. I think he'll be in football at some point. Uh, a little surprise doesn't happen right now, but it's more to do with his play than his politics. Someone recently asked you about your favorite Canadian wrestler, and I was yeah. shocked. Dino well, Bravo? You know, well, what happens is, you know, <laughs> oftentimes I like to treat uh, Twitter as flippantly as possible. Okay, so okay. More, there's so many more important things in life. Sure. Like family and friends, etc. So I don't... 
it's not like, you know, I think it's funny. I guess people must think that they pour over their answers. But literally, <laughs> I, I, you know, I get so many questions and random things that I just don't even think about it. So I think when I saw Hurricane Rester, it took me about two and a half seconds just to think of Dino Bravo and the Fleur de Lis. I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I had this cavalcade of rage of people. Did you really? <laughs> breath that hit me hard. I said, listen, if I, I didn't like Google Canadian wrestlers, I didn't, I didn't give it any sort of thought beyond my first gut, gut reaction. Like, obviously, the Hart family is an <laughs> enormous success in Calgary. Like, obviously, I know Owen Hart and Brett yeah. the Hitman. I'm, up, you know, I'm 38, so obviously, I grew up in the 90s. I, and the 80s, obviously, the Hitman was awesome. Uh, but then it was weird. I was getting like random people. I didn't even heard of Katie Rester's Iron Mike, someone I can't remember. I think also from out west. Iron Mike Sharp, so, yeah, yeah, from Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, from Hamilton. That's right. Because I was doing Calgary radio, and somebody mentioned that. And I said, "Let's." I, don't, I, I will plead ignorance on Iron Mike Sharp. <laughs> I'm not aware of the exploits. But yes, uh, the Hitman would probably be the right answer. But I, but that's I was, hilarious. Though. You know, Bravo. I love you know Bravo. The, the Fleur de Lis. Like I, I'm big on French Canada, so I, I just wanted to give Dino some love. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, last thing before before I let you go, and again, thank you so much for your for your time. But as we've been speaking, the the Raptors uh, won their series. Um, they now play Cleveland, um, and it, at times it seemed that they weren't going to get there. They got blown out. I don't know, was it game two or game three? Game three, yeah. Yeah. Um, your 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 thoughts on this team and 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 their chances against you know the uh, the reigning champs. Well, you know, you're right. After Game Three, it looked abysmal because it looked like Milwaukee was just a young team that had more firepower and just looked to be clearly the better team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 just looked like they were posing a lot of problems for Toronto because their youth and athleticism. But thankfully, the Raptors were able to regroup. And having watched the last few games, they looked great. And you know, obviously, their best players have to be their best. That cliche is appropriate and accurate. So as long as DeRozan and Lowry. Are leading the charge, it should be all right. And Serge Ibaka was a good pickup for them. Balanchunas mm-hmm. obviously a good center. And if you can get contributions like Norm Powell, you can have a chance. Having said all that, Cleveland dominated. I mean, they, they, they swept the Pacers, whereas the Raptors had six hard-fought games. So Cleveland's obviously been arrested. They've got the best player in the conference, and LeBron James arguably still the best player in the world, although you make it some argument with Steph Curry or Russell Westbrook. But he obviously, is, if not the best, he's top three. So, listen, Toronto is the underdog. Um, the popular thought, at least here in the States, for those who you know, have a dog in the race, they, you know, some people were saying Toronto has the best chance of beating Cleveland, but most would still pick Cleveland. So, sure. obviously, I would love nothing more than to see the Raptors win. Having worked for MLSC, having covered the Raptors when I worked for the score, and obviously being born in Toronto, and, and you know, I love seeing all those crowd shots of Jurassic Park. And it's really something for Americans, you know, for them, I think previously they just always thought of us as, as hockey lovers, once they saw those crowds, like man, these these guys like their basketball in Toronto. I'm like no kidding. And again, mm-hmm. it's, if you know it, you know how popular it is among all people, especially young people, and just the immigrant culture of Toronto. Like that's another thing. Americans are like, oh my god, you see you see the shots, and it's like you see Sikhs, you see blacks, you see Asians, like you see people of all backgrounds. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what Toronto is. Like if you, I guess they, for those that don't know, right, they just think we're a bunch of igloos or whatever. They don't they don't realize that <laughs> like, you know, Canada like. Toronto is like a cleaner, nicer New York or Chicago. So uh, it's been great to see what the Raptors fan base has done for the city. And obviously Drake uh, is an enormous star. For him as an ambassador, I think it's helped Americans appreciate the Raptors and, and the popularity of sports in Toronto. Um, so I'd love to see it, but I, it, it'd be awfully tough to pick them, even with the hometown uh, cheer. I, I think Cleveland wins the series, but I'd love to see Toronto pull it off. Yeah, listen, Adnan, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I hope uh, you know one day you come back to Toronto. We'll uh, have a chance to to catch up. But again, thank you so much for your time. 
Kareem, this was a ton of fun. And, of course, best to your sister, Fiza, who's the best. All right. I remember back, back in my days at Ryerson, Dave, my boy, who's. So it's, uh, it's nice to reconnect, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, good luck with your podcast. This was a lot of fun. And I hope you realize, um, you know, that with my journey, that the success has been uh, in being persevering. And, you know, like as you told me over email, like you have an actual job, but this is the podcast you're doing and, and clearly doing it with your own passion. So follow through on it. You don't know where these things can lead. So kudos to you for doing that as well. Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye.